give everybody a chance to join. Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> so we're going to begin this session with a 15-minute uh, guided meditation. I'd like to begin by referring back to something that Bart mentioned uh, this morning. And it's a phrase from the Buddha's Discourse on Mindfulness, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And there's one line in it which uh, has a very interesting instruction where the Buddha says, be mindful, and then in the equivalent of quotes, you know, in Pali, uh, it says, be mindful that, quote, there is a body, unquote, to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So just that phrase, be mindful, quote, there is a body, suggests that that phrase could kind of be used as uh, kind of a mental label, you know, or a note in the mind uh, to remind us to come back to awareness of the body. And I've been uh, using that phrase in teaching now for quite a few years, and people have found it very helpful because we can frame the sitting, you know, as, as we sit down and assume a comfortable but alert posture, uh, and we can just start, there is a body, kind of settling into that and using that as the framework for then becoming aware of whatever else arises. For example, when we begin to uh, open to the feeling of the breath, instead of necessarily 
narrowing the focus on the breath or zeroing in on the breath, we could hold the larger frame there is a body and then become aware of the breath, the feeling of the breath arising within that larger frame. So it's as if we're giving our mind or creating greater spaciousness in our mind, but that includes awareness of whatever arises within it. So we use the phrase, there is a body, we settle in, and then I will be guiding, you know, uh, with respect to what we might become aware of within that. Um, you can experiment, you know, with times when maybe you do zero in on the breath or not. You know, we keep that larger framework that is a body and then simply be mindful of everything that's arising within it, like sounds or thoughts or other sensations. Uh, <clears throat> So find a comfortable, alert, meditative posture. I will too. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> sit in the way that's most comfortable for you with respect to whether your eyes are closed or just slightly open and with a downward gaze. Uh, some techniques of meditation keep the eyes wide open. Uh, generally, we don't do that in Vipassana, but it could be done. So um, you can experiment with that as well, you know, and just see what is most conducive to staying mindful, because that's the point of it all. Okay, so take, settle back into a comfortable posture. Maybe repeating the phrase in the mind, there is a body. And you can repeat that phrase throughout the sitting, you know, at different times, <laughs> there is a body. So we settle into the feeling of the whole body, the sitting posture. And as Charlie, as, as Bart mentioned this morning, uh, Charlie's our tech guy. <laughs> so I've been very involved with Charlie throughout this. So as Bart mentioned this morning, uh, settling in and relaxing the eyes and relaxing the jaw and relaxing the belly, you know, because this is often places where we're holding. So soften the eyes, soften the jaw. Just as an aside, the jaw often relaxes if we place our tongue just behind the upper teeth, kind of the palate. What I found is that that automatically relaxes the jaw. So again, something just to play with. <clears throat> Relaxing the belly. Okay, there is a body. We're settled into the body. And within that framework, become aware of any sounds that may be appearing. One of the things you may notice as we're settled in with this, within this frame, there is a body and then open to sounds. You may begin <clears throat> to have the experience that there's really no division between inside and outside. It's like the feeling of the body and sounds are just all appearing in this open space of the mind. 
staying relaxed, not waiting for anything, not wanting anything. We just settled back into that field. There is a body where whatever sounds may appear and come and go. And when there are no sounds, being aware of the silence. Within the frame, that framework, there is a body. You may become aware of the sensations of the body breathing. And as I said, there's no need to particularly zero in on the breath, although one could. <clears throat> but it might be interesting for a while to stay in the larger framework simply be with the sensations of the body breathing in the context there is a body, keeping that larger frame. And as you feel the sensations of the body breathing, you may notice where in the body those sensations are felt most clearly. And occasionally, and to the degree that it's helpful, you, you can occasionally repeat the phrase, there is a body. Just reminds us to settle back into that awareness. And then being mindful of whatever arises within that <coughs> framework. Sounds, the sensations of the body breathing, 
There may be other sensations in the body that appear. Be open to the feeling of those sensations, some pleasant, perhaps some unpleasant. We're just open to the experience of them. Within this framework, there is a body. Also become aware of any thoughts or images that appear. See how alert you can be to the arising, to the appearance of thoughts or images in the mind, and seeing how they too come and go, very much like sounds. Settling into the experience of there is a body, perhaps using that phrase occasionally. And 
and being mindful of whatever arises within that frame. Sounds come and go, the sensations of the body breathing, other sensations that we may feel in the body, or thoughts or images. The key is being relaxed and alert at the same time. When you're ready, you can <clears throat> slowly, gently open your eyes and also then become mindful of seeing. I think seeing is an underappreciated field for mindfulness, even though we're living largely in the world of what's being seen for people who have uh, functioning eyesight. And yet, I think very often we're not mindful that we're seeing, but that's that's a whole other topic. Uh, <clears throat> so for today's topic, uh, as some of you may know from uh, some of the course description that was uh, online, I just finished a three-month uh, home retreat. So the practice is very uh, alive and vibrant for me uh, in these days. And as always, uh, retreat, this retreat highlighted the challenge uh, that we face as lay practitioners living in the world, which is how we can integrate the Buddhist teachings on liberation, on enlightenment, so kind of going to the highest uh, aspirations we might have. How can we integrate those teachings in the busyness, the kind of the samsaric nature of our life in the world? 
So this, this is the great challenge for us. So in this talk, I'd like to jump in a bit uh, into the deeper end of things. And some of the ideas and concepts uh, will be familiar to some of you, and perhaps for others, uh, there may be new ideas and perhaps even challenging ones. Uh, so I would suggest just, you know, taking it all in, uh, seeing what's useful for you now, and perhaps if things, you know, you don't quite understand or uncertain about, let them be, let them be seeds, you know, which in their own time may or may not germinate. Um, you know, at first, the framework of understanding that I'm going to lay out, uh, at first, it may sound somewhat theoretical you know, or abstract or disconnected kind of from the nitty gritty of one's life. But if you can hang in there, you know, as I lay all of this out, I think and hopefully you'll begin to see the tremendous practical applications of this uh, particular teaching that I'm going to be talking about. So it's not about Buddhist philosophy. The Buddha just analyzed things, understood the nature of the mind and body and our interactions in the world with such clarity. So he understood things on so many different levels, but they're all in the service of coming to the end of suffering. Right? And so that's really what it's all about. And it has that kind of practical uh, implication for us in our lives. So often our inquiries, we might say our spiritual inquiries, perhaps even before we knew anything about Buddhism, uh, often revolve around the question, who am I? You know, this, this is like a basic existential question. And it may be a really conscious reflection, or it may just be kind of the background uh, almost subliminal motivation, you know, in our searching, you know, who am I? And I had a very uh, striking experience of that. This goes back many years uh, when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. I was about 21 years old uh, with all the seeking and searching and angst, you know, of being that age. And I remember one time I was teaching at this school in Bangkok. I remember being in my room and looking in the mirror and just desperately wanting to know, well, who's behind what I'm seeing? You know, and so the question was very uh, important and meaningful for me, even though I, at that time I had no idea how to, how to investigate it. But this who, who am I, actually can be misleading as the core question of our inquiry. Because just in that way of formulating it, who am I? It's already predicating the idea of a self, a being, someone, some unchanging core self behind all our experience who's at the center of our lives. So just the word who has already has that implication. So I think it sets us off in the wrong direction for the most part. Um, 
there's a better question, I think, that would serve us. Uh, but before I get to the better question, I just want to, a little sidebar. Conventionally speaking, of course, we can use that language. If somebody asks you who's coming to dinner, <laughs> they're not interested in a deep philosophic analysis of mind factors and body elements. They don't know Carrie's coming to dinner. <laughs> so conventionally speaking, you know, this language is fine. But from a Dharma perspective, if it's not rightly understood, this view of who, this imaginary who, you know, the view of self is really at the core, at the center of the suffering in our lives. So even though we use that language conventionally, which is fine, from a Dharma perspective, we can dig deeper. We can get underneath that to really see what's going on. This is really important and it was expressed, uh, there was a writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei, and he, he was a European uh, who lived for a long time in Hong Kong, I think, and just had some kind of realization because his books are just filled with these little stories and uh, aphorisms which highlight the understanding of selflessness. So this is one of his little aphorisms. Being attached to the view of self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. So for most of us, this is our lives. We're barking up a tree that isn't there. Uh, so the question is, when are we going to stop barking? <laughs> well, we can stop barking when we understand or we go from the who, we go from that question, uh, from who to what, what am I, rather than who am I? And that begins to open up, open us up to a whole profound investigation of the nature of this mind and body without it being predicated beforehand on the notion of a self or an I of some being. So that's why this change of language can, can be very impactful in our inquiry. So what are we? What are the building blocks of all our experience? And then once we, once we understand what the building blocks are, the next very important question is, what do we build with them? What do we do? What, what kind of reality do we construct for ourselves out of the basic building blocks of our experience? So this is a lot of what I wanna go into in this talk. So what is the what? <laughs> that's, that's the question. <clears throat> the Buddha offered some very uh, simple ways of understanding the basic elements of our experience. And then with somewhat more complexity, he described the myriad things we do with these building blocks. Some of these things lead to more suffering in our lives, you know, and stress. And some of the things we do with these building blocks lead to greater ease and to greater freedom. So that's where understanding things on this deeper level 
really has tremendous <coughs> implications for how we're living and how we're experiencing life. There is one discourse of the Buddha, which <laughs> uh, it has a very bold title. The title of the discourse is The All. Okay, so, and this, this is, <laughs> the Buddha describes the all in like a few sentences or, or one long sentence. So it's quite remarkable that he encapsulated the all in this very short little discourse. So what is the all? The eye, invisible objects. The ear and sounds. The nose and smells. The tongue and tastes. The body and tactile sensations. And the mind and all mental activities. You know, thoughts and emotions and different mind states. This is the all. And he challenged, he challenged his audience to say, can anyone express something in their experience that's outside of these six things? It's quite amazing. You know, we, we, we think our lives are so complicated, but really only six things are ever happening. It's sights, or sounds, or smells, or tastes, or sensations, or some kind of mental activity, mind activity. So, so far, I think, you know, this is fairly easy to understand. Moment after moment, we're just experiencing these six things. So <clears throat> the image that sometimes comes to mind is that our life is like a six-piece chamber orchestra. It's just six different instruments, you know, playing and, you know, and in interrelating with one another. And that's <laughs> that's all that's happening. It's this chamber orchestra of the six senses. And in Buddhism, the mind is included as the sixth sense. <clears throat> so it's like these six senses, this chamber orchestra is playing the music of our lives. So what kind of music are we creating? But here is where it gets interesting. <laughs> and a little more complex because how the mind is relating to these six experiences the, how we're relating becomes itself part of the unfolding of our lives so it's not only recognizing these six things uh, but actually going deeper into the mental field to see Okay, how is the mind? And, and by mind, it, it also includes heart. It's the heart mind. Uh, how is this heart mind relating to these different sense impressions? And of course, as we know, there can be a lot of complexity in how we relate to our experience. So the Buddha talked of three powerful, powerfully conditioned tendencies in the mind. And in, in Pali, you know, which is the language a lot of the Buddhist texts uh, are, are in, in ancient Buddhist language, ancient Indian language, uh, it's called papancha. And papancha means 
the proliferating tendencies of mind. That is, those ways of relating to things that just proliferate a whole world of interaction. Right? So they're very powerful forces, uh, basic forces, you know, in the mind that are playing out all the time, but that mostly we're unaware of. You know, because unless we're really looking carefully at how things are unfolding and have this conceptual framework to begin with, we probably wouldn't even know how to differentiate these three proliferating tendencies. So that's what I mean is in this talk, I wanted to go a little deeper and dig, you know, and really explore what these three proliferating tendencies are and how they work because it's this papancha, you know, this, this just proliferation in the mind, uh, which are all rooted in and further strengthen the sense of self, right? So they play a very critical role in how the notion of self, the idea, the concept of self, uh, is both created and strengthened uh, and embedded, you know, in you know our life stream. So the three papancha, right? These three proliferating tendencies. The first is craving. The second is conceit, and the third is wrong view. So I'm going to be talking about each one of these. Uh, so just to start with it, a very simple uh, explanation of them. As we know, craving is just, <laughs> we're all familiar with craving. <laughs> craving is that wanting or desire or thirsting you know, for something. And it's rooted in the sense of mine you know, or belonging to me. We want things to belong to me or taking them to be mine. So I'll just give you one little story uh, which shows both this craving for wanting things to be mine and also the, the rapidity of the proliferating tendency. So, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous story, but it's true. I was on retreat at the forest refuge and I'd been there for some time. My practice felt you know, really like it was deepening. And I was reflecting on the Four Noble Truths. You know, and as many of you know, uh, there's the truth of suffering, dukkha, and the cause of, of it, which is craving, and the end of the dukkha, which is the end of craving, you know, and the path. Well, I was thinking about this, and I said, yeah, the end of suffering is the end of craving. So I said, Joseph, just stop craving, <laughs> stop wanting, come to the end of suffering. It seems so simple, you know. Uh, and then immediately, I mean, it's maybe 10 seconds after I had that thought, Joseph, just stop craving. I was wearing my favorite meditation sweatshirt. I have, you know, we all probably have our little meditative clothing. Well, I have a favorite sweatshirt. Every time I'm on retreat, this is what I wear. And going from... Yeah, just stop craving. <laughs> Within about 30 seconds, 
I started imagining, I'd like to get this sweatshirt in a lot of different colors. You know, because the one I have is only gray. <laughs> and then my mind started fancy until, you know, within a minute or two, I saw what was going. I just had to laugh at my mind. And But that that's what proliferation means. You know, we have a thought and it just kind of expands our whole world. Okay, so that's craving based or rooted in the sense of mine or belonging to me or wanting it to belong to me. The second of the tendencies is conceit. And this is the English translation of the Pali word mana, M-A-N-A. And I want to give the Pali words for some of this because sometimes for myself, when I'm recognizing different forces in the mind, sometimes I like to use the Pali word because for me, it uh, it depersonalizes it. It doesn't, it doesn't, the poly word doesn't ha- carry the same, we might say baggage that certain English words might carry, you know. So that's why just to become a little familiar, you know, with, with this basic poly terminology. So conceit is the English translation of the poly word mana. And it means diff- something uh, a little different than how we use the word conceit in English. You know, because in English, we say somebody's conceited. You know, we think they're very full of themselves and they think they're better. And that's that's one small aspect of what's meant by mana. But more fundamentally, mana, this conceit, is the felt sense or the felt impression of I am. It's I amness. <laughs> you know, it's... That's the conceit of, and in, it, I looked up conceit in the dictionary. Uh, conceit can also mean just the idea or belief about something. Right? So conceit here means I am, that feeling of I am. Just in this regard, uh, years ago, I saw an ad for a t-shirt in the New York Times. Uh, <laughs> and the t-shirt, the uh, just what was the logo or the, the writing on the t-shirt? Just said, me, me, me. <laughs> right. So that's that's an expression of mana. <laughs> okay, I am, I'm here. Okay, so craving, you know, is that thirst for something rooted in mine or belonging to me? Conceit is that deep, deeply conditioned feeling, which we all have, of I am, you know. And then the third of the proliferating tendencies is wrong view. And wrong view within the Buddhist context is just the view or the belief in some self, the, the belief or the idea of the self, some unchanging core being that somehow is within us or is us, you know. And so this belief in self, as we all know, this this is just how the world and people commonly understand themselves. This, This is the, in a way, the common sense understanding of who, of course, there's a self, you know, of course, there's a me, 
but the Buddha, and this is this is where the teachings in some way are very radical, you know, and and sometimes challenging. They challenge conventional beliefs. And the Buddha is saying wrong view is holding or being attached to this view of self. And in this and in later talks, I'm gonna explore this a little bit more. But I wanted to just give this basic outline of the papancha, the three proliferating tendencies of the mind, craving, conceit, and wrong view. And in the Buddha's teachings, these three are usually expressed. It's kind of a stock phrase that you find throughout the different discourses. When the Buddha is talking about the workings of this papancha, it's kind of a very simple set of phrases. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. So those phrases just encapsulate these three papancha. You know, this is mine, craving, this I am, conceit, this is myself, which is wrong view. It's helpful to distinguish among these tendencies because until we've really applied kind of the conceptual framework directly, you know, and investigated practically directly in our experience, uh, we might, you know, have some basic conceptual understanding, but it may not be a, there may not be a refined differentiation between them. So I just want to explore that a little bit so we can perhaps a little more clearly see what each is and the difference among them. It's important to do this. And it's the reason that uh, I wanted to devote both talks during this course uh, to this topic is because these three tendencies in different ways and mostly unknowingly, you know, unless, unless we really learn how to pay attention to them, are the ways we construct and strengthen the sense of self in our lives. These tendencies are at work. A lot of the time, which I will go into also a bit more, they are working. They're like the background, I don't know, the background motor of our lives. Uh, and if we're not aware of them, if we're not aware of how they're working, just all the time they're strengthening, they're constructing and strengthening this sense of self. And the reason this is so important, it was expressed by the great uh, Tibetan master, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He, he died some years ago. He was a great master, really, of the last century. This is what he wrote. The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in samsara for countless past lifetimes. This idea of an enduring self is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, 
you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. Right? So this is not just kind of an intellectual exercise. This goes to the very heart, to the very root of what causes so much suffering for ourselves and others. You know, this, this core notion of self. We can begin to explore all of this in some of the very ordinary experiences of our lives. You know, we don't have to be in some deep meditative state to begin to understand how all of this is working. We can begin to understand it and understand exactly what craving is, you know, based on mine and belonging to me, what conceit is, uh, you know, based on I am, I aming. <laughs> uh, we can really see this at work in how we understand the relationship we have to the body. For example, in considering the body, we probably would not say, I am the leg, or, I, or the leg is me. Right? We, you know, we would say my leg, as if the leg is something that belongs to a me. Right? So that's the first papancha. You know, the, mine, belonging to me. And then all the craving that can arise with things that belong to us. You know, or we want it to be this way or that way or whatever, right? But there's a lot of desire that comes for things that belong to us. And then we might extend it, that, that inquiry into how we feel about the whole body, how we relate to the whole body. And when I was thinking about this, you know, in, in working on this talk, I thought, well, you know, at first people might well think, well, I am the body. You know, what am I? Yeah, I'm the body, at least in part. But then on further reflection, uh, I, was, I was thinking about an experience I had, and I think is very common to people as they get older, as they get age. Because as we get older, as we age, for myself, and I think commonly, the feeling I am hasn't really changed. You know, even as we see the body so visibly change, the gray hair and the wrinkles and whatever, the whole, the whole aging process. So we see the body changing, but isn't, don't, don't you have that sense often how did this happen? You know, I, I feel the same. It's the same I am, you know, 30 years ago. So this begins to give an indication that even the way, even the way we relate to the whole body is not so much the conceit I am, but rather mine. The body belongs to me. Yeah. And again, when we consider the body in, in this way, the body is belonging to me. So many different desires and cravings come about. <laughs> how, how many of our desires 
and cravings are rooted or coming from our experience of the body. And the body belongs in this. The body is mine, and therefore, I want this and this, and you know, want it to be like that. So this is common. This is just the ordinary experiences of our lives. An extreme version of this and the way we are usually relating to the body as being mine was expressed in this one ad I saw in some magazine. Um, They were advertising something you know, desirable, I guess. Uh, and, 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 you know, it was these uh, beautiful setting. And the caption was, there were, you know, people in the ad. And the caption was, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, as if this is what we should aim for. <laughs> this is what we should strive for. Yeah, but this this it indicates, you know, just kind of a basic energy, even though that's an extreme version and <clears throat> uh, the motivation, this motivation in our lives may express itself in more subtle fashion, <laughs> you know, and not so uh dramatic. <clears throat> but it points to a very interesting point, Dharma point which I think would be well worth investigating because there's a certain confusion that keeps reinforcing and strengthening the force of desire and craving in our lives. And that is unexamined. We often equate desire and pleasure. And so another another uh, ad I saw once uh, for something. It's the, the caption was "Increase your desire." <laughs> you know, good good Buddhist uh, instruction. <laughs> you know, but this is part of our world. You know, and and that's the message <laughs> we're getting a lot because that is equating desire with pleasure itself, and we don't. <clears throat> We don't usually pay careful enough attention to times of desire to see the suffering embedded in it. And so a phrase that I've been using lately is migraines of desire. You know, because like with a migraine, it's such a compelling force, you know, in the experience that just pushes us to relieve it but it's suffering migraine it's suffering desire is like the desire is like a migraine that's pushing us to get something you know so it would be very helpful to begin to see the suffering embedded in desire it might make it a little less attractive for us to us so a way of doing this, you know, a practical way, which I've seen a lot in my own meditation and, you know, talked a lot about it on meditation retreats, 
And this could be done any time, whether you know, in meditation or not, but it's particularly visible or noticeable when we're actually in formal meditation. So just sit, you know, in your next sitting. Um, just be watchful for the next time desire arises. You know, and maybe it'll be in the next sitting or following sitting, but it probably won't be too long before there's some desire for something that arises in the mind. If you can be mindful, you know, if you can really you know, catch the arising, oh, there's desire in the mind, and just be with it and you know, feel, feel what it's like to have the desire, and then notice what it's like <clears throat> when the desire ends, which it always will. You know, it'll be there for however long it's there, and this is why in sitting it's particularly helpful because we're not doing anything, we're not we're not acting on it, right? We're just sitting with it and feeling it, and with it, with it, and then at a certain point it goes. And notice how it feels when the desire leaves. And my experience is it always feels like a huge relief. It feels like the mind, the heart, is being let out of the grip of something. You know, the, the, the desire is the grip. But normally we don't see it because on a more superficial level, we, we're equating the desire with some kind of pleasure, kind of the anticipated pleasure of getting whatever it is we desire, but not seeing the migraine aspect of the desire itself. So this would be very helpful to, to really see for oneself. You know, this is an application of these teachings. So we're not just listening and hearing and maybe, you know, understanding to whatever extent we do on an intellectual, conceptual level. All of these teachings are to be applied, into, you know, as a, as a basis for our own investigation. And of course, we also uh, <clears throat> take to be mine or belonging to me, uh, which is rooted in different kinds of craving not only things related to the body, but all, all of our minds, you know, minds, my thoughts, my feelings, you know, my anger, my happiness, it's all belonging to me. So do you see how, how deeply rooted this way of relating to things is in our lives? So this is not a superficial conditioning. It's like, this is right down there in the, in the roots of how we're living. And as the whole point of the Buddhist teaching is to see what are the ways in which we live and relate to experience that create more suffering and what are the possibilities for freedom? You know, that, that's what all of this is about. <laughs> I was thinking of uh, just this, deeply rooted sense of possessiveness, you know, of mine and belonging to me. So the image that came to mind was of a bunch of kids, you know, maybe playing with some toys. And <clears throat> maybe at some point, one of the parents says to one of the kids, uh, you know, share the toys, share the toys with others. Uh, and occasionally they might be come up against that heartfelt wail but it's mine, <laughs> no. and this, this, it's so young. <laughs> this is very young. 
but it's deep, you know. And so our practice is really to to get in there with it all, you know, and to see just in the ordinary unfolding of our lives how impactful these proliferating tendencies are. This is not some occasional thing that happens from time to time. It's they're driving forces in our lives. So we need we need to really explore and investigate. So the Buddha also talked about a more subtle kind of craving. Uh, he called it craving for becoming. You know, when we believe this mind and body to be mine, then all kinds of cravings will arise for it to become like this or that, you know, in whatever way. But instead of being totally settled back in things just as they are, there's often this leaning into this unfolding process of our lives. Instead of being settled and at rest and really complete in each moment, this craving for becoming, we're leaning into how things are unfolding rooted in craving, rooted in wanting. One way of seeing this is very obvious in meditation uh, has to do with expectation. You know, we may think we we have no expectations <laughs> about you. We usually do. <laughs> they may be a little hidden at first, but a good signal, you know, for this and one that, that is provides its own interesting insight is to pay attention to those times in our practice and also in our lives when we're struggling with something. It just, things are not flowing easily, you know, and we're just, just in some kind of struggle. And usually we see this as a problem, you know, it's, it's, it's not pleasant. It's a, the, the struggle is a kind of suffering. But more usefully, it's helpful to see struggle as a very important feedback rather than being a problem. Because struggle means just one thing. It means something is happening in our experience that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So I mean, it's so simple. I love, I just love, you know, the teachings because uh, once one sees a lot of these things, in retrospect, they become so obvious. But of course, till we see them, uh, we struggle. So just for example, when you're struggling in your meditation practice, just as one example of how struggle can happen, you know, sitting and maybe, you, you know, the, your intention is to sit and be with the breath. But then maybe there's a lot of pain or discomfort in the body. Or just a lot of thinking, you know, just lots and lots of thinking. And we're trying to be with the breath, but the, the discomfort or the thinking keeps distracting us. And so we're in this struggle between the two. If we understand struggle as feedback, we ask the question, oh, what am I not accepting? Oh, I'm not accepting the fact that there's discomfort in the body. Can I settle back and relax and open to it? Just be with it. At that point, it's not the breath that we should be with. It's to be with what's presenting itself. 
which in this case might be discomfort, or even a lot of thoughts. You know, some some sittings, for whatever reason, the mind will just be thinking a lot. Instead of struggling with that, let the struggle be the indication, oh, I'm not accepting this. I'm not settled. So we could just make a big frame, settle back, and just become aware, oh, mind thinking, mind thinking. We can be mindful of that, and the struggle is gone. Might be, you know, different emotions. Okay, so all of this is pointing to a very, this this whole discussion about craving, uh, you know, whether it's craving for the body to be a certain way or the craving, craving for becoming in the way I described. The whole, the whole field of craving is rooted in one, we could almost say hardwired tendency in our being. So it's very powerful, you know, the desire and craving is not a, <laughs> this is not a superficial conditioning that goes really deep. And the basic, the root of it is we want what's pleasant and we want to avoid what's unpleasant. You know, and for most people, of course, well, of course, <laughs> why shouldn't I want what's pleasant and avoid what's unpleasant? It just feels like, yeah, this is normal. This is how it should be. The problem is that we can't control it. You know, in all of our lives, completely control it, or even for the most part, control it. Just life is made up of this mix of pleasant and unpleasant. And if we're driven by this desire for pleasant and desire to avoid the unpleasant, we are in a constant state either of defensiveness, trying to protect ourselves, you know, from what's unpleasant, or this just energy, this obsession with wanting or craving or becoming. Uh, so it's really important to see this. And, and the Buddha had very strong words about this, which Whenever I hear this particular teaching, like, it kind of makes me sit up straight. <laughs> he said, as long as there's desire for the pleasant or attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. That's a very powerful statement because it really points to what we need to practice. And which is settling back with greater equanimity. And it doesn't mean we don't experience what's pleasant, but on the same token, it, means, it doesn't mean we don't experience what's unpleasant. It means that we have enough inner strength and resilience and equanimity right? just to settle back. Okay, within that frame, there is a body and then being aware of whatever arises within it some things will be pleasant, some things will be unpleasant. Can we just be with it? Can we experience unpleasantness? Fine. Pleasantness? Fine. So we're fully engaged. It's not a disengagement, but it's an evenness. You know, it's a non-reactivity. Okay, so this doesn't mean 
in this place of openness and equanimity, it doesn't mean that we don't respond to things appropriately. Of course we do. If your hand is on fire, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. No, the hand's in fire, you take it out. So this is just one example of a whole world of you know interactions we have. It doesn't mean that we don't respond. Rather, it means what is driving the response? Is it just the reactivity, you know, of craving this or that? Or is it discernment? Is it really the, the operation of wisdom in our lives? Right. And so the mind, even as it's responding, you know, we take the hand out of the fire, we're responding to that situation. But the mind can be at peace with that. You know, not caught up in a great reactivity of mind. Uh, so this is part of our practice, you know, enlarging our capacity, you know, to hold this whole range of experience that comes to us, you know, as human beings in this life. Okay, I've talked quite a lot now about the first aspect of papancha, which is craving born from this notion of mine or belonging to me. The workings of the second aspect of papancha, of these proliferating tendencies, is conceit. And these are a little more subtle and in some way more pervasive. Although the conceit I am within the Buddhist framework very often refers to the comparing mind, you know, I'm better than, I'm equal to, I'm less than, you know. So conceit often, mana often refers to that comparing mind. It also manifests as thoughts of I am over time. And this is really interesting because it's, it's a good part of our lives. So what this means is the sense of not only I, this, I am this now, but I was. I was this or that in the past. Or I will be this or that in the future. So just reflect for a moment that you'll probably know this from your meditation experience, but I'm going to speak more about how even more pervasive it is than that. How much time is spent in our minds in past and future? Huge amount of time. You know, just remembering things, memories, just and planning, you know, imagining. So our minds are doing this all the time. And we're not seeing that in doing that, it is a manifestation of the conceit I am. We are strengthening the I amness or, or I aming, right? Not only in this in this moment, kind of in relationship to what's happening, you know, comparing ourselves with others, but over time in the past, present, future, uh, and to the degree that we're lost, which we often are, you know, in thoughts of past and future, unknowingly, we are strengthening this this conceit, this I am. And most generally, 
you know, the, the conceit of, of mana, this just underlying impression that we carry throughout the day of I amness, uh, it's just, it's very often just the underlying backdrop to our whole days. You know, I'm walking, I'm eating, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And we're not thinking that, but at least in my experience, there's often the felt sense of it that's there kind of as the underlying understanding, you know, of what's happening. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And all of this is so ordinary that usually we don't take the time to investigate what exactly is the I that we're talking about. So even though it's so pervasive and so common in how we're living our lives, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm going here, I'm going there. How often do we actually stop? Well, what is the I? What is this thing right, that is running my life? So this is where the teachings and the meditation and the practice of mindfulness, this is the key you know, to, to unlock this door. So I'd like to give just a couple of examples of this. And the first is just a kind of a very simple one, which illustrates just the proliferating aspect, you know, of conceit and just how it's, <laughs> it can create whole worlds. And the second example is actually about something that's a little more impactful in terms of the actual suffering in our lives. So the first example uh, also happened on this recent retreat. I was walking outside and it was a particularly cold day, like it was freezing cold. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing walking meditation and ah, I'm so cold. You know, so that was, that was uh, my sense of it. You know, I'm so cold. And although this could be a convenient way of communicating, you know, if somebody said, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel so cold, that would be fine. But that's just convention, you know, more fruitful, a more fruitful investigation of the experience would be to get underneath that conceit, you know, I, uh, I am so cold. Okay, well, what, what's the building blocks here? And going to, oh, there is coldness, unpleasant, you know, where we just get just to the basic elements of the experience. But instead of that simple awareness to start, I, fi I finally came to that. <laughs> but my first, my first response, and this just shows the proliferating nature of conceit. So I'm out there walking, it's freezing cold, I'm so cold. And immediately my mind went to fantasies of being on retreat in Hawaii and walking on the beach and under the palm trees and the warm breezes. And I spent... A, not that long, but long enough, you know, I don't know, maybe a few minutes, just lost in this mind-created world. Hawaii is a long way from Barry, Massachusetts, but it was right there in my mind. And it's just, you see how this conceit I am just led to this whole proliferation of a mind-created world. 
So that happens a lot, you know. And even when it's not in and of itself painful, you know, or some kind of suffering, it's diluted. <laughs> Which, because it is a mind-created world that we're living in. It's not actually happening, except as thoughts and images in the mind. Uh, so we want to see it. But a more, uh, perhaps a more impactful level of understanding this conceit I am. And again, I saw this on retreat. And, you know, I really kind of love kind of coming and doing this course right after the retreat, because when I'm on retreat, I get just so fascinated by, you know, the looking and understanding. And you know, every once in a while, we get an insight into a particular kind of suffering and then seeing, okay, well, Where's the release in this? So this this is an example of that happening when I was on retreat. So I don't remember all the details exactly, but it was something about, I was on retreat and I'd been on retreat maybe for a month or so. Uh, and then, I don't know, I, I just spent some amount of time, I don't remember exactly how long, maybe half an hour, an hour, just frittering away some time, you know, just... <laughs> That's all it was. I, I don't know. I can't remember what I was doing. But then, you know, when I started reflecting about being on retreat and, you know, the basic intention for being on retreat, uh, and I saw that, uh, I really started getting down on myself. You know, Joseph, why are you wasting? Why are you wasting all this time? And so it was just a lot of kind of self-judgment and self criticism in this negative way. And I really felt, you know, quite contracted and just a down mood. You know, was, uh, you know it, did, it didn't feel good. But then wisdom came to the rescue, for which I was very grateful. And I realized that all these thoughts of, you know, the self-critical thoughts, the self-judgmental thoughts were all rooted in conceit. I was just, oh, I am. In this negative way, I was just strengthening this whole sense of I amness in these thoughts. And it was amazing. As soon as I could see and name the defilement, conceit, mana, as soon as I saw what was happening, it took me out of this whole story of myself that I had created with the attendant down mood and, you know, not feeling great about myself. As soon as I, oh, this is just mana. This is just conceit. I aming in a negative way, you know, rather than in an inflated way. But it was so amazing. As soon as I, as soon as I could name it and see the whole thing disappeared. And then I was just back right in the moment with whatever was happening. So there's an important point here, which we can generalize uh, from. And that is when uh, we're in some state of suffering, you know, or discontent, and we can name the particular defilement in the mind that's causing the suffering or causing the discontent. So in this case, it was conceit. It may, sometimes it might be craving or wanting, you know, but we name it. We say, oh, that's just craving. 
Well, that's just conceit. When we name and see the defilement, immediately it can extricate us from this, I don't know whether it's a word, this enmeshment <laughs> uh, in the story of ourselves that we've created. So it's a very liberating aspect of mindfulness, but it, it means not coming out of the enchantment of the story and really seeing underneath, okay, well, what is the defilement that's creating this story? It's like we're getting to the root of it, to the cause of it. And then as soon as we become mindful of that, much easier to see the impersonality of it, right? The, the mana, the conceit, even though it's all about I am, the mana itself is selfless. You know, we see the impersonality of the defilements, right? And so it helps us see them and be with them with mindfulness and with equanimity. And in that mindfulness, uh, they disappear. You know, in the texts, in, in the Buddhist discourses, very often practitioners, uh, you know, are seeing some defilement in the mind. Uh, the expression will be Mara, I see you. Mara being kind of the embodiment of ignorance and delusion. So Mara, I see you. you know, and in, in the stories, in the texts, as soon as, as soon as the practitioner says, Mara, I see you, Mara just disappears. Well, that's actually what happens. Right. It's in the seeing of the defilements that we can actually let go of them. You know? So this is a very practical application you know, of all of these teachings of being mindful of these papanchas, of craving, of conceit. It is interesting to notice just how seductive the stories we have about ourselves are, you know, and sometimes the, the stories are forces and sometimes the tragedies and I mean, all, all kinds of stories, but in all of them, we are the star, we are the center, even when it involves suffering, you know, or, or delight, but it's like at the center of it all is the I, is the I am, right? It's very helpful just to, get underneath the story back to the basic building blocks of our experience. So just to reiterate, and there's one famous sutta discourse, uh, it's called the Bahia discourse, uh, which encapsulates this teaching about coming back to the basic elements of experience, you know, the building blocks of our life. Um, there's a whole backstory to it, but I, I won't go into that. The, the Buddha is giving this teaching. Uh, this man by here came, and he came up to the Buddha while the Buddha was on arms round. And he said, please teach me. You know, he was very, very, uh, had a lot of urgency. And at first the Buddha said, well, you know, wait till I finish arms round, I'll go back to the monastery, I'll be glad to give the teaching. No, he was very insistent. So given the fact that, that you know, the Buddha was standing in the middle of the road with his alms bowl. He gave a very pithy teaching. In the scene, there is just what is seen. In the herd, 
there is just what is heard. In the sense that is smell and taste and touch, tactile sensation, there is only what is sensed. In the thought, there is only what is thought. So it's very simple, but profound, because it gets us right back to the direct experience of the impersonal building blocks of our whole lives, you know? And the mind is freed from the proliferation of story. You know, we just come back, oh, in the scene, just the scene, in the heard, just the heard, sense, just the sense, in the thought, just the thought. So it's very simple. But as my teacher Munindraji said, it's simple, but not easy. <laughs> And again, I came across this quote from the Indian poet and philosopher Tagore. He said, it's very simple to be happy, but it's very difficult to be simple. <laughs> so in some way, we could think of our whole practice as learning simplicity, you know, and extricating ourselves from this seduction of all this mental proliferation based on craving, Conceit and wrong view. Okay, there's one other aspect of conceit which I want to mention because it also has a tremendous effect on our lives and our relationships. And it's just so, so common and, and really quite pervasive. And this is the conceit of comparing ourselves with others, how we evaluate ourselves in relation to some other person or to an idealized presentation, you know, of some other being. You know, and a good part of our consumer society is all about this. You know, we, we have all this advertising showing these perfect beings enjoying perfect happiness with some product or other, you know, with the implication, oh, if we get that product, we will share in the happiness of these perfect beings. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, we can see it's ridiculous. However, this goes deep in us and we can see it perhaps in a more immediate way, in a more uh, frequent way. Uh, and, and this would be a really helpful um, experiment to make. Just watch in your interactions with other people. It's either people you know well or, or often when you don't know well. And sometimes these, these projections happen even more. And just see, you know, if within oneself there's kind of almost an automatic evaluation of oneself relative to them. You know, being better than, equal to, less than, and it could be about anything. It could be about how we look, or it could be about intelligence, or it could be about creativity. You know, uh, even about how mindful we are. <laughs> on, on one retreat, I remember, I was in the dining room at IMS. <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous what the mind can do. I was, I was there being very mindful, of course with all these judgments about this one person who I was looking at, who didn't seem mindful at all. <laughs> you know, and I, so I was in kind of a, they're, they're not being mindful. 
completely missing that in that comparing, I wasn't being mindful at all either, you know, but that was the working of conceit, just almost that kind of automatic comparing that we do and evaluating ourselves in relationship to others. Well, this is, this is really a source of suffering in our lives, you know, and in some significant way, it closes our hearts to others. We were not just open and being with them and ourselves just as we are without this evaluation. But when conceit, the proliferation of conceit operates and it does often, and we want to see it, you know, come so often, then we can begin to see kind of the impact of it in these very real life situations of, of our relationships. So the last of the proliferating tendencies is craving this conceit, and the last of them is wrong view. And this is wrong view, in the Buddhist sense, is the very deeply conditioned belief that there is a self. That there, and this is a common. This is this is how we commonly understand things. So this is this is not an aberrant, uh, you know, happening. This is the common understanding of course there's a self of course there's a me so th this is where the teachings can be very cha they're challenging or conventional way of understanding things you know so when we hold this belief which which most people do this it's kind of the bedrock of how we understand what's going on of what's going on you know, this belief in the self and as I said earlier, this belief that there's some core unchanging being <laughs> located somewhere or other <laughs> that is who and what I am. And we don't quite know what it is, which is interesting, but even not quite knowing what it is, we believe it to be the center of our existence. <laughs> So the, the, yeah, the Buddha is really urging us and challenging us to investigate this. Because if we don't, we are just going to continue proliferating in all of these ways through craving, conceit, and wrong view. This notion of self. And the Buddha was very, he had very direct words about wrong view he said there's nothing as harmful to us as wrong view because based on wrong view based on this view of self it's leading us in the wrong direction it's like everything we do instead of heading towards liberation towards greater freedom towards greater ease if it's rooted in this belief in self it's just leading to more difficulty and to more suffering in our lives. And that's why the Buddha said, there's nothing more dangerous than wrong view. The teachings are all about understanding this and we could say coming to right view, really coming to understand through mindfulness and through our practice, the workings of all these proliferating tendencies rooted in self and strengthening self. You know, if we can see them operating more clearly, 
and they are operating <laughs> in our lives a lot extensively that's the path to greater freedom that's the path to greater ease so hopefully you've gotten some idea you know of these three proliferating tendencies and i'd like to just give you a kind of a parting exercise which i hope you'll do before our next meeting because this particular exercise will give you a very immediate direct experience of how pervasive these papancha are these prolifer proliferating tendencies are they're not just occasional things they are uh, they're just the matrix really of how we're living so we, we want to understand we want to see them so this is the exercise take some time and it might be just five minutes ten minutes and you might do it you know going for a walk but it could be doing anything uh, but i found it particularly uh, helpful in going for a walk because uh, the physical activity was very simple you know, and so going for a walk, you know, we're trying to be mindful. Not, not, I'm not talking about necessarily this super slow, creeping mindfulness walk, but just, you know, taking, taking a normal walk, but trying to be mindful, you know, the body moving. And then for these five or 10 minutes, as you're walking, you're going for a walk, you know, being more or less mindful, have the intention to notice the quickly passing thoughts that go through the mind. And I think you'll see that there's a pretty steady stream of them. The problem is that most of them are quite light. You know, they're, they're not necessarily disturbing. They're not necessarily any big drama. But they could be you know, some memory of the past or some planning for the future, something or other, reinforcing these three papancha. Right, but not in not necessarily in a way that wakes us up to them. What I found is I was I was just amazed at how frequently these thoughts come, and they don't necessarily even last long. You know, maybe thirty seconds, or I don't know, a minute, or, or fifteen seconds. They can be quick, they can be light, and therefore unnoticed. But all the while, they are strengthening the sense of self through these three proliferating tendencies. You know, where we might just have these sorts of some desire for something, or even some sense of just I'm walking, you know, in one way or another, these quickly passing thoughts, as I said, are just strengthening these three tendencies. So this call it really, uh, first, it's important to see that so we can appreciate the importance of investigating all this. You know, it's not something to ignore. And we can also see not only how pervasive it is, uh, but we can also see how in one way or another, they are strengthening this wrong view of self. And so in the seeing of them, and 
to the degree that as these thoughts come, we're actually aware of them as thinking rather than lost in them, lost in the dream of them for that particular uh, few minutes. In the seeing of them, we're actually weakening the sense of self. You know, we're seeing, oh, this is just a passing thought. And we're not lost in the story of it, in the creation of self in it. And so we see, and this is going to be part of the talk, the next talk I give, uh, we begin to reframe all experience as not mine, not I, not myself. So that's going to be the theme of the next talk. Oh, the big question remains, given all this conditioning power of these proliferating tendencies, how do we free ourselves? You know, how, how do we work with it in a way that leads to liberation? And this is going to be the subject of, of the next talk. So thank you for your attention. Uh, I want to remind you that if you have questions, and you might well have questions that come out of all of this, please email them to practice at dharma.org. Uh, and if you send them in, you know, as as they come to mind, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, I'll have a chance to look at them, you know, and hopefully uh, respond in some way that might be helpful. Uh, so let's just sit for you know, a minute or two, uh, and watch out for those. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.